Hello and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today it's just me, and we've only had the one topic, but yeah. So, first of all, sorry we had to take a bit of a impromptu break. I wasn't expecting it at the time of the last episode, so that's why I didn't say much, but I did post that on Facebook. But anyway, most of that squared off. There's still bits and pieces that might change here and there, but it shouldn't affect the show that much, so it's still good to go. But anyway, let's talk about the actual episode. So this episode will be one year from the first episode of Blood and the Rocks. That's right, we made a whole year. Don't know how we did it, but I sure as hell couldn't have done it without you. So thank you so much for tuning in, telling your friends, just kind of being there. I'm extremely happy about that. And yeah, definitely wouldn't have made it without you. Can't really state that enough. Like, you guys are the lifeblood of the show. But anyway, I have a story for you. And hopefully I do it well. Because if I do it well, you're probably going to be pretty mad or pretty depressed at the end of it. So we'll see how it goes. Just a bit of disclaimer, there's going to be some probably disturbing descriptions and and some racist language. So just keep that in mind. But yeah. So yeah. Today I'm going to be telling you about the Chinese massacre of 1871. And this happened in America, in California. And as far as I can tell was the uh, largest lynching in America. I took a look around, I couldn't see anything bigger than it. But I may be wrong, let me know if that's the case. But I've weighed this is a super messed up story, and it made me pretty mad just reading about it. So hopefully I can get that across to you guys, because this here is some bullshit. But before we start, I'm drinking a beer from the Wild Beer Company called Witness, which is surprisingly fitting. I didn't plan it like this, but... It worked, so, you know. And it's a pale ale of something called Britannomyces. Pretty strange, but tastes good. 5.8%. I'm happy. <laughs> but anyway, you came here for a story. Let me give you one. We're going to cut to a promo for Dumb and Busted, and then we'll be right back. What podcast brings you true stories of exceptionally smart and insanely dumb crimes every week? Dumb and busted, obviously. But Hannah, where is your one-stop shop if you want to hear about a killer nurse, a pervy arsonist, or a group of hella old dudes breaking into a vault? Dumb and busted. Allison, come on, seriously? We host the show together. Okay, last question. Where can I go if I need to hear the number one song of 1999, I Want It That Way? What? The Backstreet Boys album Millennium? How did we even get on this tangent? Oh, okay. Sorry for being the only one who's ever fallen victim to their tight harmonies and timeless songs. Anyway, please listen and subscribe to Dumb and Busted on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Crime you later! And we are back. So, let's talk about the 1871 Chinese massacre. Now... This one's pretty interesting because this is, not only is it a horrendous event, but it has it's the, to the point where it has a direct tie-in to how Los Angeles Street got its name and produced enough outrage that it bumped the famous Great Chicago Fire off the front page of the New York Times. And essentially, it was covered up pretty well. And the truth about it didn't really come out for a good 140 years or so. Um, when a guy called, when a writer called John Johnson Jr. spent a year going through all the evidence and documents that were essentially fought lost to history, etc., etc., and really brought it back to light. So essentially, it was a race riot that happened on October 24, 1871, when a mob of about 500 people 
attacked, robbed, and murdered the Chinese residents of the area. And despite there being so many people and so many witnesses, nobody was punished for it. And we'll get into that soon enough. But first, let's get some background going. So, Los Angeles in the mid-1800s was a frontier town with a disproportionate number of lynchings for a town of its size. And, and mob justice was very common. It was kind of a period of violence across the country in general, actually. But here, it was extremely high. Uh, it was a pretty new town on the western frontier, and, and it attracted people from all across the country, and it was known for being a particularly rough area. In the early 1850s, it had a population of nearly 4,000, and it was considered the most violent city west of Santa Fe. It was very common for most men to walk the streets armed with weapons, pistols, knives, etc. And supposedly, a murder occurred every day in the city, most of which were on or around an area called Calle de los Negros. Um, excuse my Spanish. And, and Calle de los Negros was where this event actually occurred. Uh, it's located immediately northeast of LA's principal business district, and it's about 150 meters from the intersection of Arcadia Street to the plaza. It's an unpaved street, which was named by Spanish colonists for Californians, which were essentially darker-skinned, Spanish-speaking Californians. So generally, these are people that were of multiracial heritage, so generally mixes of Spanish, Native American, and African. And by the time the first Chinatown developed around the area in the 1960s, it was essentially a slum. Now, the name Calo de los Negros uh, for English speakers would have been called Negro or Nigger Alley. Like I said, there'll be some racist language, but that's mostly because of this name. But really, the naming is... It didn't actually come from the main modern use of the word nowadays, but it was referring to people of, of darker skin in the Spanish colonial caste system, essentially. It was essentially a racial classification in, in the Spanish colonies, which, while not meant as a complete insult, still pretty... Let's use the word questionable, shall we? But, yeah, anyway... So around the 1850s and 1860s, the general attitude towards Chinese immigrants was somewhat tolerant, as far as tolerance goes for uh, foreign immigrants at the time. As during the 1850s, generally most of the attention was aimed towards Mexicans. So, for example, Horace Bell in August 1853 wrote that there were rumours that Joaquin Murrieta, the famous bandit of the Gold Rush era, was in LA. Worth noting that Joaquin Marietta, I couldn't tell 100%, but there's a chance that he is mythological. Also, actually, the inspiration for Zorro. So with these rumours, the entire ranger company, which is kind of like a volunteer law enforcement around the area, which was mounted on foot, marched and rode through places like Sonata Town, Caledos Negros, and various surrounding areas to, quote, search every suspicious house and place within the city limits. And... This led to a wave of public lynchings, which were mostly directed towards Mexicans in the area, and consolidated a lot of the white control of the area, securing the decline of the Mexican population. Now, the attitude towards the Chinese also shifted when the Los Angeles News and the Los Angeles Star started running editorials that condemned the Chinese immigration, which was occurring throughout the area, and started denouncing the Chinese as being inferior and immoral. This was a large root cause of the massacre itself, as a lot of the residents of LA and generally the area started resenting the expansion of Chinese population and generally considered them an alien group as their culture was completely different and they'd happily work long hours for very little money. And though this was the, and though this was the large reason for the shift in views against the Chinese, 
there's also some legislation which uh, also works against Asians. Asians at the time being classed as Chinese, Mongolian, Indian, etc. Like, anyone from the Asians. And this uh, state legislation passed a law that Asians could not testify in court against whites. Essentially putting whites beyond the reach of the law. As, can't testify, can't really get much done. And yeah, in 1868, the United States signed the Berlingame Treaty, which with the Chinese Empire setting conditions for immigration. And in this period, most Chinese workers who immigrated for the United States were men, like, who generally intended to stay just temporarily. In the 1860 census, there were only 14 Chinese residents in LA. And by 1870, there was a recognisable community with a population of about 172. And about half of these lived on Cala de los Negros, where most of the city's violence and general shadiness occurred. And this was a time when, according to a US census, the Chinese population was about 3% of the entire population, with 80% being men. And towards the end of the gold rush era, there was a big decline in gold production, the Central Pacific Railroad completed, and there was a large drought which um, caused farm production to drop as well. So a large number of unemployed white labourers also started travelling to California towns from Sacramento to San Diego and LA. And there's the kind of climate of a lot of exploitative labour and monopoly by railroad barons. They say with all this going on and all the editorials against the Chinese, etc., a lot of the white labour unions started misdirecting more dissatisfaction towards the Chinese, and they believed that they're essentially lowering the wages and living standards of, of the white workers. LA was pretty anti-Chinese at this point. Now, another key point is the Chinese Tong factions. So Tongs were essentially these organisations which Chinese immigrants would find, gathering places. They'd essentially provide services for Chinatown communities like immigrant counselling, English classes, finding them work, etc. And often they were connected to crime as well, as they'd essentially also work as a kind of sworn brotherhood kind of thing. In the days before the riot, there were two Tong factions, and they kept this feud going which was over the abduction of a Chinese woman called Yutho. Apparently she's also documented as Yahit, but I didn't see that in many places. But yeah, apparently it was with the intent of her getting married. And most women in the community essentially would serve as prostitutes, and they were working in sexual slavery. But there was also the issue that she was already married. So yeah, Yutho belonged to a gang, which was led by a shopkeeper called Sam Yuen. And allegedly she was kidnapped by a rival gang leader called Yo Hing. And Yo Hing had pretty close connections with the with law enforcement and various and various other legal powers in LA. He was known for being pretty close there. It would be pretty common for the police departments to assist the Tongs with keeping confrontations internal to the community, to the point of sometimes even going out and capturing and returning women who had escaped, even in other towns and cities, from what I can tell. Sometimes even at the expense of reducing the police presence in LA. And in response to, f to the abduction of Yeho, Yuen hired a few hitmen from San Francisco to return her, including one guy called A Choi, who was Yeho's brother. So after he arrived in LA, Choi spotted Yohang and fired a few shots off at him, to which Hing escaped without getting hit or injured at all, and responded by securing a warrant for him, who was arrested a few weeks later. Choi's bail was set at a enormous sum of $2,000, which, if my calculations are right, then that would be about $40,000 in modern times, or about £31,000. Definitely not a small amount. However, Yuan paid it off, as he had his own small fortune, 
As essentially, he had a bunch of gold in a chest in his shop. And Choi was released after the police went over and confirmed that Yuan had the money. But word kind of started spreading, and there was this rumor that Yuan had hidden huge amounts of gold in his shop. And yeah, I don't even remember back to our retreat from Kabul episode with All Bad Things. When people find out you have money in your residence, especially in an area of unrest, things don't tend to go well. Anyway, let's get to the night of Damascus. It's worth knowing that there's a few different stories going on. For example, we start we start with Officer Jesus Bilderain, who apparently changed his story multiple times. We'll, we'll get into that later. So he was drinking at a nearby tavern. So according to the, like, the main story that I, could, that I saw, he was drinking at a nearby tavern. Also worth knowing that this was a town where there was a lot of drinking going around. Some things say that he was patrolling the streets. Yeah, But anyway, he heard a gunshot. And once he heard this, he ran out towards Keller de los Negros. And essentially, he saw Choi bleeding on the street from a neck wound. And spotted a group of fleeing Chinese men. So he chased them into a large L-shaped building called the Coronel Building. Um, the Coronel Building was essentially a crowded den of shops and small apartments that housed a lot of the Chinese community there. But yeah, he ran in and was shot in the shoulder as once he entered getting out of the way and bleeding on the street, he blew his whistle for reinforcement and some bystanders got involved. Like I said before, vigilante justice was pretty common, mob justice was pretty common, and in the last two decades, about 35 people were lynched by vigilante committees in LA. And one in particular was a rancher called Robert Thompson, who was an ex-loon keeper, and he chased a Chinese man up to the door of a house in the alley, despite a warning from an officer called Adolfo Celis, who essentially called out that the Chinese were armed. To this, Thompson apparently replied, I'll look out for that, before blindly firing his gun into the dark building and taking a shot to the chest. About an hour later, he was dead, and his supposed last words were, I am killed. And throughout all this, there was a crowd gathering around the outskirts of Caladeus Negros. There were even some people that were deputized to make sure no, no Chinese escaped. Uh, a few lawmen, including the chief of police, Francis Baker, uh, came and checked out. And with the growing crowd, even the three-term mayor, Cristobal Aguilar, came by to serve the situation and then left. The lawmen also left. And news of Thompson's death passed through the crowd, along with a rumor that, that the Chinese in Cala de los Negros were, were, quote, killing whites wholesale. And at this point, the crowd's blood was up. Apparently, it was a mob of about 500 people of all races and various ages. And it was a good... 8% of the entire population of LA. And this began the, well, essentially siege of Calidus de los Negros. As the mob started rushing the building, like, at first they were held at bay by gunfire coming from inside, but to get around this, some of them started climbing up on the roof using axes to put holes in the covering and shooting through from above, while another group of the mob batters open a second door with a large rock. And this was just the start of a huge race riot. And to quote poet and historian A.J. Wilson, American hoodlum and Mexican greaser, Irish tramp and French communist all joined to murder and dispatch the foe. And soon enough, people were getting lynched. Some of the Chinese were hung from two upturned wagons on Commercial Street, the crossbar of the Tomlinson Coral, which was a apparently popular lynching spot just the year before it had been used to hang a Frenchman called Miguel Lachenay. They also used the porched roof of John Goller's wagon shop at Los Angeles and Commercial, which is about a block from the south entrance to the alley. Worth knowing that Goller was an alright dude. Um, he was a former councilman, 
and he objected to the Chinese being hung outside his windows. At the same time, his protest was that there are small children inside, to which one member of the mob essentially leveled a rifle at him, saying, you dry up, you son of a bitch. That said, it's probably hard to say don't lynch these guys when there's 500 people outside your door. And apparently as the Chinese were hanged outside of his porch, apparently the man on the roof would dance and sing. And by the end of the riot, quote, the dead Chinese in Los Angeles were hanging at three places near the heart of the downtown business section of the city, from the wooden awning over the sidewalk in front of a carriage shop, from the sides of two prairie schooners parked on the street around the corner from the carriage shop, and from the crossbeam of a wide gate leading into a lumberyard a few blocks away from the other two locations. One of the victims was hanged without his trousers and minus a finger on his left hand. And in reference to the last victim that I mentioned that quote, this was a Chinese doctor called uh, Dr. Jean Tong, who was pretty well respected in the city. As he was dragged through the streets of LA, he tried to negotiate and attempted to offer $3,000 in gold and his diamond wedding ring. Instead of um, allowing the negotiation, the, one of the mob members shot him in the mouth to silence him, uh, before proceeding to cut off his finger with the wedding ring and remove his trousers in order to get any money that was in them. The mob would raid pretty much every Chinese-occupied building on the block and attack and rob nearly every resident. And I've seen a few different numbers, but by the end of it, a total of about 17 to 20 Chinese men were hanged by the mob. Supposedly the youngest one was 15 years old. It's quite hard to say exactly. And remembering the officers at night that went away, apparently they were loitering near the hay scales at the corner of Los Angeles and Arcadia streets about a half block from the trouble. Apparently one officer took custody of, of a fleeing Chinese man, but he was surrounded and the victim was wrenched from him by the mob, to which he returned to his post, saying that he was unaware that any Chinese people had been hanged. The massacre was eventually brought to an end by Sheriff James Burns, who pleaded that if only 25 volunteers from, the, from a crowd of onlookers stood with him, he could stop the mob. And he was hoisted onto the shoulders of the crowd and carried into the alley, causing the mob to disperse. Especially by 11 o'clock, the bars were full with the mob slating his first, with one person quoted as saying, Well, I am satisfied now. I have killed three Chinamen. Next morning, the citizens of LA gathered around the town's jail building to view the bodies of the dead laid out in double rows, and the following people were lynched. One source I read said that only one of them was involved in the shootout. They were Ah Wing, Dr. Jean Tong, Chang Wan, Leon Kui, who was a laundryman, Ah Long, cigar maker, Ah Lu, um, which doesn't say a, what, it, what he did, Wong Chin, a storekeeper, and a few cooks who were Wan Fu, Tong Wan, Dei Ki, Ah Wa, Ho Hing, Lo He, Ah Wan, and Wing Chi. There were also three people shot and killed at the Coronel Adobe building, who were Johnny Burrow, Ah Cut, who was a liquor maker, and Wa Sin Kwai. One survivor of the massacre would say, according to news accounts, which I'm not going to use the, the exact quote because as it's a direct um, phonetic spelling and I'm not going to do that, kind of translate into modern English. So essentially what I've, I've written out and uh, it would read as, when an American man gets mad, he's a damn fool. He kills good Chinamen all the same as bad Chinamen. And yeah, the Associated Press sent a report that night at 9pm to the San Francisco Daily Examiner, detailing it on the spot account, like I said earlier, estimating that the mob was about 500 people, 
So about 8% of the city's population. The city's population was about 6,000 people, including all the men, women, and children. So we'll go to the aftermath anyway. So like I said at the beginning, these people were never punished. Despite there being 500 people in the mob, probably a bunch of other onlookers. There were hundreds of witnesses. There were 25 indictments before for the murder of the Chinese victims. Only 10 men stood trial and eight were convicted on manslaughter charges, being Esteban Alvarado, Charles Austin, Refugio Portello, L.F. Crenshaw, A.R. Johnson, Jesus Martinez, Patrick M. Donald, and Louis Mandel. Their convictions were overturned on appeal due to a legal technicality, as f- papers were filed with the Supreme Court of California, alleging that the convictions were improper because the district attorney made a legal error. Prosecutor Tom had correctly charged defendants with murdering Dr. Tong, but Tom had failed to introduce evidence that Tong had been killed. Remember that they laid out all the bodies next to the jailhouse. But anyway, the court agreed and the convictions were set aside. And Tom was a veteran prosecutor. This was a rookie error. Prosecutor Tom never tried to retry the defendants. And he also never brought to trial the majority of those accused by the grand jury. And after some time, the indictments themselves were mislaid. So no future trials could be held. And so we have to know that while a lot of the looting and murder were carried out by various thugs and hoodlums around the area, this couldn't have happened without any approval or intervention of people in power in the town. They couldn't have gotten away with it without a legal cover-up, essentially. The victims in the massacre were never compensated or anything of the like. In the days following the massacre, Hing and Yuan, who both survived, gave their versions of the events to the Los Angeles Daily Star, where they blamed each other for the outbreak. What was interesting about Yuan's um, account was that he said that his men opened fire on Officer Bill Durain because he came for them in the company of Hing, who was the rival gang leader. And there was a few reversals by Officer Bill Durain that, that kind of cast doubt on what he said happened, as he, as both he and his friends gave several accounts of what they saw that night, sometimes naming UN, sometimes not naming UN. Officer Bill Durain would say that he saw UN take the, take the lethal shot at Thompson originally. By the t- but by the time that UN filed a suit against the city of Los Angeles to recover his lost gold, Officer Bill Durain testified for UN, claiming that he had never seen the gang leader on the night of, a mask of the massacre. Another thing to note is that Officer Bill Durain had a reputation for dishonesty and larceny, with several court cases filed against him in the years both before and after the massacre. And Horace Bell would write years later on that he believed Bill Durain and Thompson went to UN's store for that afternoon for no other purpose than to steal his gold. However, despite everything happening, this... The Chinese massacre didn't really do much to improve the treatment of the Chinese community in LA, and anti-Chinese sentiments grew, if anything. For example, the Anti-Cooley Club was created in 1876, Cooley generally meaning low-skilled workers, and it, count- and it had a significant number of powerful citizens in its members. The newspapers also resumed slanderous editorials against the Chinese community, etc. However, soon after, the event became well-reported on the East Coast with newspapers describing Los Angeles as a, quote, bloodstained Eden after the riots. But regardless, a 
growing movement of anti-Chinese discrimination would climax in the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which stopped immigration of Chinese labourers and and barred the Chinese from becoming naturalised citizens and barred the Chinese from becoming naturalised citizens on the federal level. But after news of the massacres started making national and international headlines, the city leaders start, took further steps to improve law and order, and this would be the last time anyone of the Chinese community would be lynched in LA. Now there was a lot of revisionism and hiding things away, as at the end of the year, local newspapers didn't mention the lynching in their year-end analysis of major events of the last 12 months, and Cala de los Negros was renamed to Los Angeles Street in 1877, and 10 years later, the Cala de los Negros itself was raised in 1887. The clay buildings were replaced with fired brick structures, etc. But it didn't really do much to improve the area. The violence that characterised the area did decline largely. However, prostitution continued to flourish on the east side of the plaza. The Chinatown continued to be neglected by the local government. Like, for example, it was the last community to get connected to the city's sewer system, like, in the early 1900s. And frontier apologists would blame the massacre on the, quote, dregs of California society, an assortment of thugs and highwaymen who'd slouch into town every fall from the mines in the north and the lawless Mexican territory to the south. And that's all I have for the actual massacre. But there were some events that happened years afterwards, which may or may not be related. So in 1877, one of the newspapers noted that one Yo Hing member had been hacked to death by a hatchet by an assassin who, who carried an old grudge. But the author failed to note the Hing's connection to the massacre and Celis, who was one of the only two defendants that was acquitted in the massacre case. Remember, 10 stood trial and only 8 were convicted of manslaughter charges. He died in an accident while chasing horse thieves in the San Fernando Valley according to Gard, who was the only witness and was riding in a buggy with Celis at the time. And supposedly a rifle fell out of the wagon and hit a spoke on one of the wheels, which caused the rifle to discharge a bullet, which struck Celis square in the chest. And as no one else saw the incident, Gard's word was taken as it was. And around the same time, H.M. Mitchell, a journalist, went hunting with city attorney William E. Dunn in the, in the foothills beyond Pasadena where city attorney, Dunn, mistook his friend for a deer, accidentally shooting Mitchell twice. So a bunch of weird stuff happened afterwards as well. But on that, that's all I have overall. So yeah, on that, we'll cut to music and be right back with an outro. we are back so hope that went well hope you're as happy as i was and i hope i got across to you well enough it's been a little bit since i've been behind a microphone <laughs> but yeah it's an incident that made me super mad when i read about it a couple weeks ago it would be unbelievable if it wasn't so believable so yeah we have lynchings cover-ups just general injustice but on that we'll wrap up and get this outro done. Probably won't have a Halloween special per se, because we have a bunch of stuff coming up in in November, and that's gonna be a month of World War One stuff. And we got, and we have a collaboration coming up in that month on the eleventh of November. 
which which is probably gonna end up being two episodes so we'll see how that goes when it's all put together but yeah i've got an as of saying this i've got 19 podcasts involved and they're all going to give a 5 to 15 minute story on something related to world war one uh it doesn't have to be directly related to the war um just has to be something affected by it so it could be anything really and i'm really excited to see what they come up with and i hope you are too we have social media at we got facebook.com slash blood on the rocks Twitter and Instagram at the Bloody Rocks and email at botrpodcast at gmail.com. And on that, I think we're good to go. So, thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends. And have a great week. I'll see you soon. <laughs>